Welcome to Out on a Limb, where traditional finance and the new digital economy converge with a sense of history. My name is Tim Enneking, and this is episode 29. Today is March 28th, 2023, and it's just before four o'clock. Today is a continuation of the discussion of the events, mainly of last week, with a couple of interesting additions. Uh, five points, the first four of which are fairly quick. The last one is not going to be terribly quick, but I find it fascinating, and that is I, I dug into really what people mean by moral hazard and how it comes up in things like bank rescues. The first point is also related to banks, Credit Suisse, and UBS. And this is clearly the topic that's left over from last week because there was so much that went on. As most of you probably know, UBS had its arm twisted by uh, FINMA in Switzerland, which is the financial regulator to take over Credit Suisse. Uh, a fascinating history because now in the age of the internet, you see bank runs that happen much, much faster. And Credit Suisse and UBS, it's, uh, it's a story of the two powerhouses of Switzerland. And Switzerland itself is interesting. It's a very small country, only has about a 7 million population. It punches well above its weight in the international arena. And there are only about 30 banks that are considered of global systemic importance. And both CS and UBS are one of those banks. And not since 2008 have two banks of global systemic importance uh, merged. And so here you have it 15 years later. The, the story behind CS is really a sad one. Ten years ago, CS and UBS had the exact same market cap on public markets. And since then, though, CS has just been on a real losing streak. It's had internal spying scandals where executives were spying on each other. It's had money laundering charges. It's had corruption charges. In the U.S., that was reflected in some Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, Act accusations, which uh, CS settled, so it didn't, didn't agree, but it also agreed to pay centi-million dollar fines. There are issues with uh, Credit Suisse and UBS, for that matter, hiding the income of U.S. citizens. Uh, anyway, Credit Suisse was just a comedy of errors. You had, you had various, uh, uh, various financial scandals over the last couple of years, one involving supply chain and, and the idea of factoring invoices, but factoring invoices in advance on an international basis. Uh, Credit Suisse got caught in that. You had the scandal about, uh, uh, was it Bill Wang, where he was constantly buying positions in eight stocks, borrowing money and buying more. And when that house of cards uh, collapsed, Credit Suisse was found, was found holding the bag in a lot of other cases when other financial institutions like Goldman Sachs were able to avoid the consequences. So Credit Suisse has just had huge, huge management problems for a full decade. And couple that with what's called AT1 bonds, and we'll get to that in a second, which were starting to really lose their value, uh, C CS could not continue as an independent entity. It was taken over on a weekend, which almost always happens. Uh, the Swiss regulators have sim come out, since come out and said that Credit Suisse would, had we not forced a merger with UBS, it would not have survived the next day. It would not, would not have survived till close of business, business on Monday. One of the indications of how badly CS was doing is some bonds that it issued 
which are called AT1 bonds. So it's additional tier one bonds. Tier one capital is the capital that banks have to keep in reserve to represent or to, to, back, uh, to backstop uh, client or customer uh, deposits. And additional tier one capital was a very new kind of bond invented in 2008, 2009 that provided that capital at a low interest rate. In theory, in theory if the bank stayed as a going concern, it would also be very low risk. Well, the AT1 bonds and all equity in CS was wiped out, which caused, among other things, the uh, head of the largest sovereign fund in Saudi Arabia to resign because he said, very frankly, too frankly, that, oh, we're not going to invest any more money in CS. He said that uh, less than a week before uh, CS actually collapsed. And so the AT1 bonds were this additional capital of backstop investors and they're rather strange as bonds because normally in the world of finance, you have bonds that are paid before uh, stock is paid. And then within stock, you have preferred stock paid before common stock. These bonds were explicitly, and they're new bonds, so they don't have really standard terms yet, but the CS bonds stood behind common stock. So what happened with uh, the common stock shareholders, oh, and I misspoke a minute ago, they weren't wiped out. They were reduced to $3.3 billion, which, depending on your starting point, is between a 60 and an 80% haircut. So the holders of 18 bonds were furious because common stockholders weren't wiped out, but the 18 bonds were. Uh, the, the credit default swaps, the CDSs, that is the premium you pay to insure bonds, which is usually or often less than 1%, uh, usually around 1% and 2 for sovereign bonds, like the bonds of Italy, it might be up to 3 or 4%. Uh, and for Germany, it'll be less than half that as, as things generally go. The cost to insure Credit Suisse uh, AT1 bonds skyrocketed, and it actually approached 50% of the face value of the bonds, and that means a default is all but, is all but imminent. So the CDSs, the credit default swaps, the price increases increased monumentally and it became very clear that no one had any faith in CS and FINMA forced UBS to take it over. UBS took it over for a fabulous price and it paid very little straight up and it had a lot of, uh, a lot of guarantees, something called bad will, the opposite of goodwill. So it has like $60 billion, I think it's 56 billion to uh, cover any, uh, any losses with. And most importantly, it got something called Swiss Universal Bank, which is the one part of CS that has never lost money. And in fact, Swiss Universal Bank is worth far more than what UBS paid for all of CS. Now, given that Credit Suisse has been losing money, that's uh, perhaps fair. But with all the other guarantees, UBS is getting an insanely good deal. The, formally, the, the merger, the takeover will take place only closed toward the end of this year, but if you're uh, if you like bank stocks and like uh, contrarian bets, uh, UBS stock would be a very interesting one to purchase right about now. As a quick aside, before we move to the next topic, if you rank all European banks by the number of AT1 bonds they issued, now that CS uh, no longer has any outstanding AT1 bonds. This, the largest issuer of 18-1 bonds in Europe, so the largest in the world, is 
you guessed it, UBS. So UBS could do fabulously well from this deal, but it's standing pretty close to the edge of the cliff, so it doesn't have a lot of maneuver, maneuvering room either. Second point is a March prediction. Now, the, uh, the, we do these uh, podcasts on Tuesday, and inevitably the, the FOMC, the Federal Open Mar- Market Committee, meets on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, so it announces its decision right after uh, the podcast. On occasion, we've done them on Wednesday just for this reason. Nevertheless, uh, the last one was on Tuesday. My prediction, I was sticking with 25 bips, and that prediction came true. I'm also sticking with a 25-bit prediction for May, uh, as well as no cuts until 2024, although the stock market is clearly pricing uh, pricing in earlier reductions be, because of the bank crisis. Powell, in his testimony last week, almost guaranteed there would be another 25 bips, but uh, CS happened uh, as well. So the question is, since it's a global, uh, globally important systemic bank, is that going to affect any of Powell's thinking? My reaction is no. I'm going to stick to my guns. Uh, the the predictions I made, I, I really spoke but disdainfully about companies like Citibank that every week seem to utter another prediction, which means the, the value of those calls as predictions are, are virtually nil. Um, so I'm just repeating what I've said before. One piece of it has come true, and I've added the idea of no cuts till 24. Interestingly, BlackRock came out today and said the exact same thing. BlackRock came out and said the, entire, the markets are underestimating the the interest rate cuts that will come and overestimating the, or rather when the interest rate increases will stop and they're overestimating the speed with which decreases will come. So I'm in uh, BlackRock's corner or given the timing, BlackRock is in my corner. Uh, We're looking at 25 in May. Uh, I've never been sure about June. I'm still not sure. So I'm going to wimp out on that one, but we're not going to get any, any cuts until next year is my is my firm prediction. Third point is a fascinating one that happened after uh, all the bank problems is we talked already about how the correlation between BTC and fiat shattered. It had been dropping uh, actually quite dramatically from 85 to about 25 and it plunged even further into the low 20s after the bank issue. What happened is, is, as you know, Circle, which issues uh, the USDC stablecoin had $3.3 billion with SVB in a single account. It's only 250000 virtually nothing, was covered by federal insurance. So what you, so Circle, as a result of that, USDC did what they call depegged from the U.S. dollar. That is, since it's a stablecoin, it's supposed to be one-to-one to the U.S. dollar, backed by U.S. dollars, USDC is, Circle has this audited, makes the, makes the results public. It's trying to dethrone USDT, which is one of the other stable coins, in this case, run by Bitfinex and Finex. Circle's backed by Goldman Sachs, so it's uh, quite a respectable uh, organization, particularly in the, via, in the crypto space. Sorry. But suddenly, this $3.3 million is stuck. Now, interestingly, there are about $60 billion of of USDC outstanding. So this is only 5% of the value, but once it depegged, it fell to as low as 85 cents 
on the to to a USDC, which is really kind of crazy. There's a heck of an arbitrage move there because it was 95% backed. And some people did, a lot of people bought it, actually recommended in a different forum that people buy USDC because it just made too much sense to me. And interestingly, it lost the peg on a Friday, a little bit on a Thursday, and then on a Friday. But it uh, it so as a result of that, because there was no it lost the peg because of banking and there was no banking news, fiat banking news over the weekend. It lost the peg and stayed without the peg or, or, or de-pegged for the entire weekend. So a number of friends of mine were concerned. They said, my God, this is the longest de-peg in the history of crypto. And I actually laughed out loud. I said, of course it is, because it's the first one that's related to fiat events. And while crypto is open 24-7, fiat is not. You watch. Uh, it's going to start narrowing the, the peg by Monday, and it will be totally back in place by Friday. And that's because the FDIC had announced it would insure deposits of greater than 250K. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. I tracked the USDC every day for a while and then just stopped tracking it altogether because it was boringly close to you know, either 9 point or 0 0.999 or 1.001 to the dollar. And there's always a little bit of fluctuation there. So the uh, it lost, so a stable coin, a major stable coin lost its peg. Again, it's about $60 billion to USDT's then $80 billion. Well, once that happened, uh, there was a, a really unique, and I don't think this has ever happened in the history of, of stable coins to crypto, because, because you given the bank, uh, the bank runs, you had a lot of people exiting banks, going some into CDs, some into certificates of deposit, some going into into money market funds, but you had a lot of people going into crypto. Normally what would happen under that sort of circumstance, given the advent of stable coins over the last four or five years, is everyone would pile into stable coins. And that's a safe place to, to, to be, supposedly. Um, it's tied to fiat, but it's not fiat. And lo and behold, you have the second largest stable coin, only slightly smaller than the largest, and suddenly it's uh, stability is called into question because of this link with fiat. Some of the dollars backing the stablecoin are held in banks, specifically the bank that had great problems. So uh, discerning, panicking investors don't want to go into stablecoins either. So where do they go? They jump into crypto blue chips. And the bluest of blue chips, and arguably the only one, ETH is kind of in a never-never land between what 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 uh, BTC, let's say, and what people call alts in the crypto space, which is basically everything else. Uh, the bluest of blue chips and the only clear blue chip is Bitcoin. So everyone jumped into Bitcoin. So what you see is Bitcoin skyrocketed while the rest of the market was left behind. Uh, Bitcoin during the month has gone up about 20% as we speak, ETH about half that, and a lot of the alts, especially smaller ones, have actually gone down during the course of the month which almost never happens. The statistical proof of this is the measure of Bitcoin dominance. Bitcoin dominance is what percent of the total market cap Bitcoin represents. Prior to all the banking events, so using uh, March 4th as a starting point, uh, Bitcoin dominance was 41.4%. And it had been inching up during, inching up during the course of the year. It was about 38.5% at the beginning of the year. But it was 41.5% on March 10th. 
on January, uh, uh, today, as of today, well, actually yesterday, because today it dropped a bit. Yesterday, it was 46.4%, up 5%. That is an absolutely enormous increase considering to the extent anything else went up, like ETH, which generally represents about 18% of total market cap. It has to increase that much and more. So a 5% increase is absolutely huge. I went back and looked at the historical increases, the movements in Bitcoin dominance, even going back way back, you know, 10 years when there were very few uh, cryptocurrencies, as we call them now, basically BTC and uh, nascent ETH and pretty much nothing else. The, there has never been a bigger historical move over such a short period of time. The differences in the past is that the dominance moves continue to increase. So it may, Bitcoin may have gone from 40 and skyrocketed and as a result gone to 70% uh, in terms of dominance, but never has there been a bigger move faster than what we just saw, which is really quite stunning given we're comparing a period where you have literally thousands of cryptocurrencies to a period where you had literally a handful. It's really, really quite impressive. Uh, and the note I have written for myself on this point is that this uh, increase in dominance probably won't last a lot longer. And so let me check it real time now, just refreshing it. It was 56.4 when I made these notes uh, and I wrote down that it wouldn't last a lot longer. Now it's 45.8, so it's hardly plunged, but a difference of six basis points in a couple of days is actually, by most historical standards and all recent standards, uh, quite impressive. So, it, and it's not often you see events in the crypto space affecting very precisely, almost surgically, the, the crypto space. Sorry, effects, uh, events in the fiat space, so surgically affecting the, the crypto space. And to a small degree, vice versa, although this was, this was hardly like FTX, where you could really see the effects of FTX events on uh, stock markets that day. Not, any, not, not any more than that, but still. Uh, so anyway, that correlation uh, broke down between BTC and the rest of crypto, which is hugely positive, honestly, because you want people to become more stock pickers or crypto pickers than they have been in the past. But also, obviously, with the fiat markets being really hurt by the, by the banking crisis or banking mini crisis, let's say, the fact that BTC skyrocketed also did a lot of damage to the correlation between fiat and crypto, as I started mentioning. The fourth point, uh, fourth brief, relatively short point, is another prediction. And that is, you may recall that I predicted that Twitter would be sold by uh, Elon Musk for less than half of what uh, he bought it at. He bought it at $44 billion. Well, half of that prediction has come true, and I'm actually quite surprised at this, uh, because of the way it happened, but the valuation has now come true, at least according to the company's owner, Elon Musk. And if you think about it, he doesn't have, it's not in his best interest to state that Twitter is worth a small amount, but he has issued stock options to a number of his employees. And in connection with that, he sent an email to Twitter employees informing them of that of the, of the stock options. And with a stock option, the way they work, you have to provide a valuation. In that email, Musk valued Twitter at $20 billion, which 
by no coincidence, is exactly the price I said it would be worth several months ago. So uh, I'm not sure that the second half will come through that will that he will sell it, but at least we're halfway there. His 20 billion, by the way, may well be optimistic. If you look at Snap as a comparison and look at the the the, the famous DAU daily average users, I say famous because uh, Musk was sued Twitter about daily active users before. Uh, before he settled because it was clear the courts are going to rule against him. Snap has 375 million daily active users. Its valuation is 18 billion. Twitter has 238 million daily active users. So two-thirds of those of Snap, yet he's valuing, valuing it at $20 billion. Now, obviously, a daily active user in Snap isn't necessarily worth the exact same amount as a daily active user in Twitter, uh, and, but given Twitter's issues with uh, uh, keeping, retaining, and attracting advertisers, uh, snaps, a Snap daily active user may actually be worth more than a Twitter daily active user. Nevertheless, it's not quite an apples-to-apples apples comparison, but it's not a bad one, and that $20 billion may be optimistic. In any event, uh, it sounded like a pretty radical prediction when I made it, according to most people. Uh, we've already had half of it come through, come true. The last point is uh, a definition, and that is, what is moral hazard? And this is something that you hear tossed around, not all that often, often hear it misused. And so I dug into a little bit of the history of moral, moral hazard and the definition of it, and I wanted to share it with you because I found it interesting. The concept of moral hazard, uh, it's, almost, it's almost a religious one. It's like you sin, you have to pay the consequences, or I should say a Catholic one because Catholics have a tendency to think that way. Uh, the idea is not to protect someone from their mistakes because the hazard is if you do protect them, then you take away all of their uh, risk aversion. They can do anything they want and they'll be covered. So take a look at FDIC, and, FDIC insurance and the $250,000 limit. If the FDIC bails out an entire bank where a lot of depositors have more than $250,000 in their accounts, which is the case with SVB, with Silicon Valley Bank, then if it bails out the bank, then there is no disincentive for bank owners, managers, boards of directors to not take lots of risk because they will not pay the price of that risk. So the moral hazard is, is that by saving that bank, you encourage that bank and every other bank to take lots of risks because there are no consequences. Similarly, if you don't bail out the bank, then you shift the burden of the depositors to try to assess what the risk profile of the bank is before they open up their account. In other words, a, a depositor has to perform a legal financial management due diligence of the bank before it decide, before the depositor, he or she decides to open an account. Uh, the average depositor neither is capable of doing that nor wants to do that. Doing a due diligence on a bank is not a simple, is not a simple task. So what did the FDIC do with respect to SVB? It's a wonderful illustration of moral hazard. The, they did not bail out the bank. The, S, uh, the FDIC took over the bank, zeroed out all of the shareholders' equity. So it punished severely the, the board of directors, their, erected, their 
uh, elected by the board and the presumably shareholders, all stock options immediately became worthless. Um, the FDIC, by the way, may go after uh, the uh, management of SVB for two things. One, to claw back bonuses and uh, some of its payroll. And secondly, the, um, the number of insider loans. This is a variation of insider trading when a bank lends money to its own officers and directors. Those loans tripled during the last year of SVB's independent existence. And the, there, there may be fines, penalties. There could even conceivably be physical, uh, uh, physical charges brought against, sorry, criminal charges bought, brought against the managers and directors because of their activities, the negligence in the risk profile of the investments they made, as well as some of the more direct activities like taking out, taking out loans at favorable terms. So because the FDIC let the shareholders swing, let the officers and directors swing, and may actually go after some of them for, for criminal, certainly civil penalties, but possibly criminal penalties as well. There is certainly no incentive for other bank officers and directors to take lots of risk. On the other hand, it's really not possible for your average depositor, or really any single depositor, to conduct a complete due diligence on a bank nor do you want them to. The idea of a bank is that it's a safe institution that depositors put their money in, confident that it will be there the next day. Well, the 250000 limit obviously places a limitation on how casual you can be. So arguably, the depositors into SVB, who had a lot of money, and it was a lot of venture capital funds and a lot of venture capital target companies, and companies that had gone public, they put their proceeds with SVB, huge amounts of money in SVB, uh, almost $250 billion, which would make them a systemically important bank in the U.S., but they deliberately stayed below that $250 billion level because a lot of compliance uh, obligations kick in at that point in time. So all kinds of invest of depositors that have a lot more than $250,000 with the bank, some of them arguably were sophisticated enough to do a due diligence and didn't. Shame on them, I suppose, is the way to look at it. But instead, the FDIC said, look, we don't want bank depositors, particularly smaller depositors, but really any, to be in the business of doing a due diligence on a bank. So we will extend our insurance, even though we're not legally obligated to do so, we'll extend our insurance to cover every uh, deposit, regardless of how large. Now, if you go back to BTC and, and uh, Circle and USDC, that's when the peg started to to return, uh, to return at the one-to-one -one level because uh, Circle got its $3.3 billion back. And, but so did everybody else. And that was paid for not by taxpayer money, or at least not directly by taxpayer money, but by banks as a portion of their profits goes into a fund to cover exactly this kind of situation. So the moral hazard is interesting because here you do not want to have, to provide a, or incur a moral hazard with respect to management but you actually do with respect to invest to depositors. You don't want depositors to force them into a situation where they have to consider over long where they put their money. Instead, they get paid, and keep in mind this is uh, banks were set up prior to uh, the internet, so you get paid at the local bank, you go down to your local bank and you know, deposit your check when you got them and now you know, before the advent of direct deposit, but it's just convenient to have your bank, your local bank. It's less of an issue now, that convenience, 
but there's a lot of inertia in banking and a lot of people still bank with their local bank and use their local branch less frequently now, but every once in a while you do have to go to a bank. Let that be the criterion that determines what bank you go to. Convenience as opposed to, hmm, is this bank too big to fail? Uh, is it going to be, uh, is it going to be there tomorrow? And one of the reasons, by the way, that the, the, that the FDIC did not want to have depositors suffer is it did not want to drive all deposits into the five banks that are systemically important in the United States and consider too big to fail. That would reduce the, uh, radically reduce the number of banks in the U.S. Now, granted, as I pointed out last week, there are probably too many banks in the U.S. at around 4,000. But nevertheless, you don't want to drive those banks out of business on the backs of their depositors. So the moral hazard, moral hazard is an interesting concept, and it really is the determination almost always by government authorities of who should pay. In this case, the determination made that the shareholders, the officers and directors will pay, and the latter group, the officers and directors, is, is probably not done paying. And the average Joe, even if the average Joe is working for a Silicon Valley startup and is worth a couple million dollars, he or she should not have to pay for the mistakes of the bank. And with that, I wish you a good week. Hope you're all doing well and we'll speak again uh, in seven days. Thank you very much.